Well, good morning, Grace. Great to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Rob Price. Uh, my wife Mindy and I are members here at Grace. Um, for a good while now, we've been preaching through Mark's gospel, and we're getting near the end. Uh, the past few weeks, we've, we've seen ourselves in Peter's denial while Jesus makes the true confession. We've seen ourselves in the murder of Barabbas while Jesus dies in his place. The disciples have all fled. Jesus is now alone. In Mark 15 and 16, we're moving into the final climactic events of Jesus' earthly ministry, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it's this same gospel sequence that we confess in the creed when we say that he was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again. So today, in the next few weeks, uh, we'll follow Mark as he leads us through these central events of the Christian faith. And all along, I hope we'll see, as did the centurion, that truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Mark's gospel is not a detective novel, okay? But as in a detective novel, so in Mark, the details matter. I mean, the details of all of Scripture matter, but the details are there for a reason, right? They're telling us something. And we especially want to pay attention to the details when a passage like ours is this morning seems just full of them. So our passage this morning, as you might have guessed, is about the crucifixion, right? The crucifixion of the Son of God, this is kind of important, right? But in our passage, it's just wild. We actually hear less about the crucifixion and more about what seems like random details. Simon, Alexander, Rufus, Golgotha, the wine, the garments, the hour, the inscription, the robbers. We're talking about the crucifixion, for goodness sake, but in a passage about the crucifixion, we're told remarkably little about the crucifixion directly. We actually hear more about the details. But even this is a clue, of course, right? The details matter because they're not irrelevant. They do tell us about the crucifixion, but indirectly. Mark tells us about the crucifixion, its power, its purpose, its perfection, largely through the details. So this morning, we're going to follow Mark through some of the tales, not even all of them. We're going to look at Simon of Cyrene and Golgotha and the wine. And then we'll see how Psalm 22 and the inscription and the robbers, how these begin to transform Mark's portrait of the cross. And then last, we'll see how the blindness of the mockers doubles as an invitation for us to see. So we're going to look at these details to see what they tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. As we read, just note all of the details. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to that place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him 
and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to see what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you love us. In your love for us, you gave your one and only Son. He suffered outside the gate to sanctify us through his blood. Father, we were dead and you made us alive. We were lost and you brought us home. We were your enemies and you reconciled us by the death of your son. And now you promise us there is waiting for us a crown of righteousness that Jesus Christ himself will award to us when he comes again in glory. So, Father, open our eyes to see in your word the crucifixion of your Son and comfort, sustain, and embolden us as we await his return. We ask this in his name. Amen. Jesus dies deserted, alone. He's beaten, he's betrayed, he's mocked. Of the four gospel accounts, Mark's and Matthew's, they're, they're the bleakest Right? Mark doesn't tell us about the thief who believed. Jesus, in Mark's account, doesn't pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, or Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, like he does in Luke's gospel. Nor does he pray, it is finished, as he does in John. In our passage, Jesus, who has been sort of driving the action throughout Mark's gospel, he's gone passive. The miracles cease. His speech becomes silence. And his work becomes suffering. In verse 24, the crucifixion itself, Jesus practically disappears. We're told about the soldiers. They crucify, they divide, they cast lots, they decide, they take. Jesus is merely the object of one-fifth of the soldiers' activity. Jesus, we see him being engulfed by evil. And as we've been going through Mark, we've we've noted time and again just how quickly he moves. Mark's gospel is fast. All along, the narrative just goes at a breathless pace. And immediately, Jesus did this. And immediately, Jesus did that. And then immediately, something else. But now, time slows down for Mark. Mark 14 and 15 start going day by day. And then with our passage, Mark starts counting hour by hour. The history of the world turns on these few moments. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. Jesus is too weak to continue. Right? He'd prayed all night long, intensely, no sleep, 
Then there were the arrests, two different trials. There was a beating. Then Jesus was scourged. And scourging by itself is often enough to kill a man, right? Now he's staggering along with a 100-pound crossbeam on his back. Jesus is about to collapse right there on the road. Now, when they conscript Simon, it's not because the Roman soldiers felt pity for Jesus. Roman soldiers don't deal in pity. Right? When they grab Simon, they're not trying to make sure Jesus is comfortable. They don't want him to die on the way before he really suffers. And note that these soldiers, they had to force a total stranger to help. Why? Because there wasn't a single friend of Jesus anywhere to be found. But here's this guy, Simon, who was coming in from the country. Simon of Cyrene, there was a Jewish community in Cyrene, that's where Simon was from. He's probably in town to celebrate the Passover. It's fascinating, fascinating how Mark tells this story. Simon was going in the opposite direction of Jesus. Right? Jesus is being led out of the city. Simon is being led into the city. And then Simon runs into Jesus. And though Simon is forced to do this by the soldiers, he then turns around, takes up the cross, and follows Jesus. It's a suggestive pattern, don't you think? Right, chapter 8, Jesus had said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Isn't that exactly what Simon of Cyrene does? But then Mark never mentions Simon again. I mean, you wonder what happened to this guy, right? <laughs> what a privilege. The disciples had all fled, and this is the guy who is chosen to help J Jesus carry the cross. <laughs> Talk about bragging rights. But even if Mark's audience had forgotten who Simon of Cyrene was, they knew his sons. So when Mark mentions him, he explains, you know Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Oh, yeah. All right? And we hear about one of these sons elsewhere in the New Testament. Not too many years before Mark wrote his gospel, probably in Rome, Paul also wrote to the churches that were in Rome. And in chapter 16... Paul writes, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Okay, so what does this tell us? Well, Simon, on his way to celebrate the Passover, met the Passover lamb in person. His whole direction in life got turned around. He eventually became a believer in Jesus and he brought his spouse and children to Jesus as well. And 25 years later, his family were leaders in the churches in Rome. <laughs> it's astounding. Now, let's not forget that when this meeting with Jesus happened, Simon thought it was a total disaster. Right? Simon had plans, he was on vacation, he was on pilgrimage, right? He was heading into Jerusalem, he was going to worship, and his day got wrecked. He's just passing by. He's just minding his own business. And then these soldiers, they randomly grab him. They treat him like a criminal, assign him a little slave labor, and force him to join an execution party. As he's helping Jesus carry the cross, Simon is far nearer to cursing Jesus than to worshiping him. Like, how could his day get worse? 
but this is how Jesus saved Simon. Friends, if this is what Jesus can do in weakness, think of what he can do in power. If on the brink of death, Jesus can raise up a dynasty of leaders for the church, think of what he can do seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus was abandoned by every last one of his disciples, but even in weakness he can raise up new ones and restore the old. The fluctuating fortunes of Christianity in America or of Christianity anywhere else in the world Our hope is not in cultural influence. Our hope is in Jesus. And though the decline and the persecution of the church are certainly cause for prayer and for grieving, they're no cause for despair. The Son of God once brought the universe into existence out of nothing. Do you think he's capable of reviving his church? Of course he is. In a world of uncertainties, this much is sure. Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Amen? And then like Simon of Cyrene, how many of us met the Lord in the wildest of circumstances? Or how many of us are family of those whom the Lord saved in the wildest of circumstances? Or maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're kind of like Simon as he was heading into town right now. Like life was going along just fine for him, for you, but then a crisis has hit. And right now, everything is falling apart. Maybe that's why you're sitting in church this morning. Well, praise be to God that you're here. You are in the right place to meet Jesus. We want you to know that this man, Jesus, who was executed as a criminal, He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And he loves to take a crisis and turn it into salvation. We invite you to do like Simon did. That is, turn your life in the other direction and come to Jesus and follow him. In Simon of Cyrene, Mark shows us indirectly the power of the cross to save sinners. Mark tells us more about the cross indirectly again when he mentions Golgotha and the wine that Jesus refused. Uh, Lots we don't know about Golgotha. Was this place called a skull because of the beheadings that took place there? Or did the hill look like a skull? And like where exactly outside Jerusalem is this place located? It's all kind of hard to say. At the very least, skulls, corpses, were ritually unclean. Jesus will die not only alone, but in a place that's disgusting with filth and defilement. Golgotha, a place of punishment, foul with the stench of death, pierced by the sounds of cursing and misery, outside the city, unclean, God-forsaken. What does this sound like? Mordor, (laughs) yes, and of what is Mordor a picture, right? What is Golgotha if not hell on earth? You see, Mark is showing us the meaning of the cross. 
He's building a theology of the crucifixion, but he's doing this indirectly by telling us where it happens. You see, Golgotha isn't just a nasty place. It's also a hint of the horror of sin and of the terrifying punishment that sin deserves. Golgotha is a picture of eternal damnation. Jesus descends into it in order to lift us out. How far into it does Jesus descend? That's actually where the wine comes in. They offered him wine, but he did not take it. Uh, There's a verse in Proverbs. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. But Jesus refuses the sedative. Why? The wine might have helped him forget his misery. It would have taken the edge off the pain. Why refuse it? Because Jesus chooses to suffer to the full, with full clarity, full lucidity, no alleviation of the horror. Jesus' suffering will not be in any way partial, but complete. The atonement he makes will be perfect. There are no lengths to which Jesus does not go in order to save. There's no aspect of our punishment that he does not willingly accept in our place to set us free. Friends, if by the grace of God you grieve over your sins, If by the grace of God you have a sense of the wages your sins have earned, know this, Jesus paid it all. There are no depths of hell to which Jesus does not descend. Mark shows us in the details of the crucifixion the full extremity of Jesus' suffering. It could not have been worse for Jesus and it could not have been better for us. You see, Jesus suffers completely so that he may save completely. Our sins were laid on him completely and we bear them no more. Amen? And because Jesus chooses to suffer to the full, he has full sympathy with our suffering. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, when we suffer, we wish we could forget our misery, but there's no one standing there to offer us a bottle of wine, not usually at any rate. (laughs) We could start a wine ministry, call it misery no more. (laughs) Uh, Mostly, we suffer sober. And so if Jesus is going to taste death for everyone, And in the unalleviated way that countless others suffer, he can't get off easy. He can't be on meds. He deliberately refuses wine so that he can drink something else, the cup of the wrath of God to its very last drops. Jesus has full sympathy with our suffering. And what is sympathy? Well, if you've had a really hard season in life, If you've been through major suffering and you've made it through to the other side, 
right? If you faced a health crisis or financial disaster, the death of a loved one, right? If you faced loneliness or loss or addiction and the Lord's brought you through it, tell me, how do you feel when you hear about somebody else going through the same thing, right? All your compassion just wells up within you, right? You want to go find that person and comfort and advise and pray and cheer them on. That's how Jesus feels about our suffering, right? He sympathizes with us. He's been there, and he now wants to walk through our suffering with us. Jesus wants to show us how our suffering can make us depend on the Father just like his did. Jesus wants to show us how our suffering can bring glory to the Father like his did. But also like his suffering. Our suffering will probably involve patient endurance. We should expect not a quick and easy solution, but a long journey through the valley of the shadow of death. But take heart, friends. He will never leave us or forsake us. This brings us to the crucifixion itself, verse 24. And they crucified him. Crucifixion is as bad as it gets. Deuteronomy, anyone who is hung on a tree, a cross, is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you. Crucifixion is both curse and desecration. It's condemnation and pollution. What death is more shameful? Philippians 2, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because it doesn't get worse than a cross. Crucifixion was so degrading that it was illegal to execute a Roman citizen in this way. You see, crucifixion, it's not meant simply to kill. I mean, you can chop off a head to do that. Crucifixion is designed publicly to dehumanize a man and slowly torture him to death. Here, Jesus' body is being broken. Here, Jesus' blood is being poured out for many. Here, Jesus is bearing God's curse for us so that we never will. The garments that once healed those who touched them and shone radiant white in the transfiguration, they're now divvied up amongst the executioners. They're a tip for the hangman. And the soldiers, there they are, casting lots, enjoying a little game, oblivious to the suffering of Jesus, who is exposed now to the further shame of nakedness. It is a scene of total failure. Or so it would seem. What you see in the cross depends on how you look at it. And Mark now begins transforming this scene of failure. On the surface, sure, it's failure. But behind it, something else is going on. And Mark gives us the behind-the-scenes look at the cross by immediately connecting it to Psalm 22. Beginning in verse 24 and extending actually all the way to the end of his gospel, Mark begins a long dialogue with Psalm 22. Y'all should read Psalm 22 this week. It's It's like the answer key to the rest of Mark's gospel. Go for it. Uh, Psalm 22 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Mark 15, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. So Mark uses Psalm 22 to show that the apparent disaster of the crucifixion that actually fulfills lots of specific prophecies. The crucifixion had been in the plans all along. For the disciples, the crucifixion sure came as a nasty surprise, but not for Jesus. All along, he's been talking about fulfilling the scriptures, and Psalm 22 is one of those. But Mark does something else with Psalm 22 that's absolutely wild. By alluding to Psalm 22 here, and then in the next verses, by drawing our attention to the inscription and to the two robbers, Mark paints for us an astounding double vision portrait of the crucifixion as enthronement. In Mark's subtle lighting, the cross appears as a throne. But it depends on how you look at it. Pilate obviously sees nothing of this. Right? He has Jesus labeled King of the Jews in order to mock the Jewish leaders. The irony is that Pilate spoke truth by mistake. The Gentile governor insults the Jewish leaders with a true confession of Jesus' identity. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the son of David who will soon be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The inscription on the cross declares Jesus as king and by extension the cross as a throne. And here Mark is extending further some of the things he began in last week's passage. Last week we saw Jesus clothed in royal purple. We saw him crowned with thorns and then hailed as a king. And now Jesus is crucified with an outlaw on his right and an outlaw on his left. This also is royal imagery. A king flanked by attendants on either side, the royal retinue. Right, remember when James and John had said to Jesus, hey Jesus, you think one of us could sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory? That is, when you reign as king, when you've got princes seated on either side of you? For Mark, the cross doubles as a throne. But Gentile and Jew, Pilate and priest alike, they're blind to who Jesus really is. All they see is a blasphemer, a criminal, right? An unfortunate do-gooder caught between conflicting political interests. They don't see the whole picture. Do we? Right? Mark is correcting our vision of the cross even as this passage continues. We've got snapshots of deepening blindness, right? The mockers, they're tragically wrong about Jesus, but Mark is using them to help us see Jesus aright, right? So how do we see this Jesus? Which aspect of this double portrait hits our eyes? That's what Mark wants to know, right? He's using this double vision portrait of Jesus to check our spiritual eyesight. Will we see just a crucified failure or will we see a crucified king and son of God. The two look so much alike that sometimes it's hard to tell. So, snapshot one, those who are passing by. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They mock Jesus for saying he was going to destroy the temple. Now he's obviously going to die before that ever happens. Obviously, note the blindness, note the irony. 
what is Jesus doing at that very moment but destroying the temple? He's not pulling down its walls, but his death and resurrection make the temple obsolete. When Jesus completes his earthly ministry, worship would no longer be centered in Jerusalem and in its temple. The temple where God met with his people is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And now that Jesus is here and his work is almost complete, the era of the temple is ending. It's staggering. A new era in the history of salvation is dawning with the death of Jesus. And the irony in this passage just shouts to you, don't you see this? Don't you see what's happening? Truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Now, certainly, the crucifixion is destroying the temple of Jesus' body. But against all expectation, he will indeed rebuild it in three days. Now, snapshot two, the priests and the scribes. He saved others. Pause right there. (laughs) Jesus did save others, didn't he? This is a refreshingly frank acknowledgement. The man with the withered hand, Jesus saved. The disciples in the storm, Jesus saved. Jairus' daughter, Jesus saved. (laughs) But, they say, he cannot save himself. The further irony, what the chief priests and scribes do not see in this portrait, what Mark is inviting us to realize is that if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save others. Right? If Jesus had just played the God card and hopped down from the cross, if he had saved himself, he would not have borne our sin. If Jesus doesn't die forsaken in our place, we still face a God-forsaken death. When it comes to the punishment our sin deserves, it's either Jesus or us. In order to save others, he cannot save himself. Right? He had prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. No, it's not possible. Like, Father, is there any other way possible to save? No, there is not. Our salvation requires Jesus' crucifixion. And if the crucifixion of Jesus is the only way for us to be saved, guess what? We can't save ourselves. Self-salvation is simply not an option. Friends, our our sins are too strong for us. We can't handle them. We are Judas who betrays, the disciples who flee. We're the crowd who chants, crucify him. You think we can make up for that? We are Peter who denies him, the outlaws who revile him. Do you think we're in any position to set ourselves right? We can't convert ourselves. We can't make ourselves friends of God instead of enemies. Barabbas didn't get himself out of prison. We can't shield ourselves from the destruction our sin deserves. From the wrath of God, we cannot save ourselves. But we believe this, not just because we take a pessimistic view of human ability, weak though we are. And this is not coming just from some exaggerated view of sin's power, strong though it is. No, what's ultimately going on here is that we recognize we cannot save ourselves because our salvation took nothing less than God himself. It took nothing less than God himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for our sin. 
where the intervention of God himself is necessary, all other measures are futile. Only Jesus could restore us from corruption. Only Jesus could save. Only Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, could make us God's friends and God's sons and daughters. In an increasingly pluralistic culture, we must see that there is no other reconciliation of man to God except this one. Nothing else. The crucifixion of the Son of God. This is what it took to secure our salvation. Nothing less. And this is what the Father gave out of love for us. He gave his one and only Son. Though we could do nothing to save ourselves, God intervened. Jesus saves. This is the good news of Good Friday. So it's true we cannot save ourselves, but praise God, we don't have to. Our passage then ends in supreme blindness. But in Mark's hands, this becomes another invitation to see. They say, verse 32, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So the priests and scribes are not totally unaware of what's happening, right? They know what the issue is. Will they believe that Jesus is the Son of God or will they not? Clearly, they will not, and they use their settled rejection to taunt Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do one of those clever tricks, you know, so we can see and believe. Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, we know that this is not a promising strategy, right? Earlier, the Pharisees had watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. They did see the healing, but they did not believe. They started planning to kill him, actually, right? The Jerusalem scribes did see Jesus cast out demons, but they did not believe. They said Jesus was allied with the prince of demons, You see, in Mark's gospel, as we've been seeing, right, I should say, as we've been reading, first you believe and then you see, right? That's how the sequence works. For one who believes, that's first, all things are possible. Your faith, that's first, has made you well. But in our passage, the priests and scribes do not believe and therefore they cannot see that Jesus really is their king, But again, as readers of Mark's gospel, Mark is inviting us to see Jesus, the King of the Jews, and to fall down and worship him. All along, Mark has been telling us the secrets of the kingdom of God so that we might believe and then see. Mark invites us to see Jesus aright, his cross as a throne, his punishment, our forgiveness, his forsakenness, our adoption, his death, a triumph. Mark's whole account of the crucifixion invites us to see double. Even as Mark is telling us of the horrors and isolation and degradation of the crucifixion, he's doing so in ways that point ahead to the resurrection of the Son of God. So Mark's account of the crucifixion is filled with details of anticipation. And what this means for us is that we cannot see the cross. We can't even read a dozen verses about it in our Bibles except in light of the empty tomb. In other words, these verses are not just a record of historical events. They are also a summons to faith. And it's not just that Mark's account of the crucifixion anticipates the resurrection. Jesus himself 
as he was being crucified, was anticipating the resurrection. Right? Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. As Jesus is dying, he's looking ahead to this glorious redemption. And so, friends, as we see Jesus dying, we must also see, double, at the same time, the redemption his death accomplishes. Even as we proclaim a crucified Messiah, we must also say, he is not here. He is risen. Truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. We praise you, Father God, because you did not despise the suffering of your afflicted Son. You accepted his suffering in our place. You canceled the record of sin that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. You made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so by your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see the glory of your crucified Son. Enable us to rest in his salvation, to strive for his kingdom, to yearn for his return. We ask this in his powerful name. Amen.